One of my favorite words is penumbra. Its etymology is the combination of the Latin words for almost and shadow, so pane and umbra. So the word means the edge of the shadow, not quite light, not quite dark. And another favorite word, both because of how it sounds and kind of how it rolls off the tongue and because of its related meaning, is liminal, on the threshold, not quite here, not quite there. Now, some of my favorite people in the world are those who seek out those aspects and those spaces of ambiguity and uncertainty and fluidity. People who keep willing to dissolve the sense of who they are right now so they can see and notice what emerges next. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS. This is the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages of a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. And welcome to all of you who are coming back. This is kind of kicking off a new season for us after a brief break where we relied on episodes from the the vaults whilst I got my new book out into the world, How to Begin. And thanks to everybody who supported that book. I do appreciate that. I met Stephen D'Souza at the House of Beautiful Business Conference in Lisbon, and immediately, and I hope this doesn't sound too needy, I wanted to be his friend. Stephen has trained as a priest, written a wonderful trilogy of books about not knowing, not doing, and not being. He's been the vice president for an investment bank, and also head of learning and development for a Fortune 500 company, and one that sells tobacco at that. All of which when you add it up, seems to make him more of an enigma rather than less. Every day, you know, when I think I know who I am, I'm just left with a question mark. And and it's a genuine question mark because the, the older I get, the less I know about who I am. And the more I'm left with, actually, I don't have a clue. You know, that's like, and it's a genuine, and there's a genuine uh, not knowing. And, you know, as you know, it's something I've, I've written about, this idea of not knowing. Stephen's referring to the book he co-authored, Not Knowing, The Art of Turning Uncertainty into Possibility. Now, listen to his interesting take on his own uncertainty. You know, I discover more and more that I'm more mystery uh, to myself. And maybe I'm not so much mystery to others. I think others see uh us more clearly than we do or perceive ourselves. I remember one of my teachers at uh, the Kennedy School says, if you want to know why somebody does what they do, they're the last person to ask. You know, ask somebody else. Now, Stephen might not have asked me, but look, I'm going to tell you my best guess at how I see him, who I think he is. I think he is both teacher-student, and those two kind of meld together. I think he's also, I'm going to say, another merged world seeker-philosopher. And I admit, these are both all fairly amorphous terms. But the truth is, we tend to be a bit fluid in our identities. And I wanted to ask Stephen what he appreciates about his own fluidity in who he is right now in this moment. So I appreciate that I have developed the courage to let go. Mm. And I think part of, uh, uh, part of as you say, fluidity is uh, endings and uh, also risk. So uh, it can be easy to stay comfortable, Mm. uh, to stay in the situation we're in. And uh, particularly in pandemic times, I think where insecurity is higher and uh, then to 
be able to keep on asking ourselves, is this the, the right thing for me right now? And the courage to let go of the old before the new can come in. Mm. So at different times in, in my career, I'm sure in yours, Michael, you have to say goodbye to the old in order for the new okay. to be born. Right. So I'm appreciating that ability to, to, even though something is comfortable, to recognize the discomfort in it enough mm that I can let go of the old and make space for the new, even when the new is not known yet and yet it hasn't come. You know, I think Otto Sharma talks about, he says this, this question, what is wanting to be born? What's dying now? What's wanting to be born? And often I think I appreciate the fact that I can say, uh, recognize something is dying or ending and not yet knowing what wants to be born, but having... Mm let's say that maybe it's a, a faith or a confidence that something will emerge if yeah right. so i right. think it's that at the moment will you tell me how you think about risk it's one of the words you used and it's a it's a big one it's a powerful one yeah i, I tend not to be you know some people when they're at the edge for example in the, the book not knowing i use the metaphor of finisterre which was like a, a coastal town in Spain and people used to do an ancient pilgrimage. They used to walk from uh, France or from different routes to Santiago, to Compostela. Mm -hmm. uh, it was the birthplace of St. James or the resting place of St. James. And then they used to walk 90 kilometers more to reach this coastal town of Finisterre. And it was in the Latin, it means the end of the earth. And they literally thought in the medieval times that was the end of the earth. Yeah. Sailors would go off and, and they wouldn't return. So they used to draw dragons or lions in the, in the, on the maps. And it's a terrifying place. And uh, for me, that's a place of groundlessness. Mm. And when I'm making the decision, I can feel that sense of groundlessness. And so risk comes in, in terms of how do we make our choices then? Mm. And often, I and others, we have default reactions when we're at that edge or we feel this groundlessness. You know, we can feel it in our bellies. It's quite visceral <laughs> or in our breathing, yeah. our chest becomes tight. And uh, my reaction to risk is I'm, I'm not somebody who uh, turns to analysis. So I don't do, I, I do a little bit, but I don't get stuck in paralysis by analysis. Mm. But what I tune into is uh, more uh, my feeling, more in my intuition, more my heart and the more my senses and you know maybe that's it's one one source of data yeah. um, so i go inward and then i tend to also go outward so i have a lot of conversations with people when i see what's resonating here and uh that's the way i uh, approach risk in, mm -hmm. in my particular life so i think there's a basic sense of uh, you know, there's different reactions. One of the reactions is catastrophic thinking, for example. <laughs> you know, if I take this decision, then I'll never work again. Or if I yeah. leave this job or I take on that job, I won't be successful. Exactly. I'm, get, I'm dead and, in the gutter as an alcoholic within yeah. about the next three weeks. And, yeah. And to be truly honest with you, I do go there. You know? yeah. <laughs> so my mind, uh, and I think many of us were programmed to think the worst. And, you know, there's a book called Only the Paranoid Survive. And in a right. way, Michael because Dale. they're prepared for the worst, they can meet it and it's never as bad as often not never as bad as we think mm -hmm. but the cost is that emotionally we may be really suffering in our imagination or in our bodies right. for a future that will never happen mm -hmm. so i tend to do a little bit of that but then uh, have this basic trust as well underlying that that will be okay and uh, it's always that tension between the two yeah. um, but my my own balance is do my work and then trust, you know, and uh, having that combination of both 
and uh, I think it's Kierkegaard talk about this leap of faith, having yeah. this uh, recognizing that I'll never know, but do I have enough basic trust to take the next step? And not necessarily knowing all the steps in front, but just is this the right next step? Next step. Yeah, as I absolutely. say this to you, I find this is a very neat narrative, and the <laughs> the, the actual the actual process is a lot more messy, Michael, right. and uh, a lot less uh, <laughs> less certain. So it's more like a I'd say it's more like a spiral rather yeah. than uh, more like a roller coaster than you know right. a, a neat uh, a neat diagram that is yeah. uh, progressive. <laughs> Um, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, as I've been reading your latest book, Not Being, I've been reading Oliver Berkman's latest book, 40,000 weeks or 4,000 weeks, which just says you've got limited time on earth. How are you, how are you going to rise above, you know, hacking your life and productivity and, and make the most of the time that you have? And actually, I've just finished a chapter where he talks a little bit about the kind of the over, the over-awareness, the over-kind of on-guardness about the future that you can have and talking about one of the gurus um, who said, look, here's the secret to my life. I don't mind what happens. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I was like, I, I wrote it down this morning because I'm entangled in a bit of a kind of, my book's coming out in a couple of, uh, six weeks or something. Yes. And I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit, I do care what happens. Okay. I'm like, you know what, Michael, just, just don't care what happens <laughs> and everything gets a lot a lot easier a lot lighter around yeah, that I, I like that in a sense of equanimity i guess there's a sense of care but at the same time carelessness without being careless yeah. right so this it frees up something uh, there mm -hmm. i think the best compliment i had which at the time you know i took as a criticism was by a professor he said stephen you seem to squander time <laughs> and I, I thought about that because, you know, I've never been somebody who'd be the productive, you know, measure my time in 10 in increments or try to have a time planner. And there's something about time that, as you say, is some people can view it as a scarce resource. Uh, but my relationship to time has, has never been that, you know, it's never been mm. extract the most juice out of the finite time. Right. But there's some sense of being in time. And not having to to necessarily manage that as a resource. Yeah. And the paradox of that is, I forget asked, how do you accomplish so much <laughs> when you when you're not uh, when you're not you know measuring time as a resource? And I don't have an answer for that. But part of it might be because I squander <laughs> time, or that I'm not trying to manage it as a resource, and I'm not trying yeah. to uh, live my uh, think of it as an it that I need to uh, manage. You know, you're making me remember that one of the crossroads I came to was in law school. And in the summer, I did a summer internship in a law firm. And literally, they asked you to mark down how you spent your time every six minutes, like wow. an hour and divided into 10. Okay. I was like, wow, this is as dehumanizing an experience as I can imagine for myself. Yes. Not least because I'm not doing a whole lot. <laughs> you know, I'm like an intern. It's like... You can't really write dicking around for three hours, but that would have been the most accurate description of what was going on. Yeah, we know from our work that's often the the creative space that allows productivity to happen. Yeah. So it's as you say, those spaces where we might be kind of <laughs> dicking about or we're not we're not being quote unquote productive. Right. That's actually the more fertile uh, mm -hmm. ground that things are just dated, things are being yeah. uh, born. So it's often not valued and only we see one uh, more let's say the positive action side yeah. rather than than the negative capability that allows that to happen 
I think generically that's true. I can in no way claim that my dicking around in my law firm was at all productive. It was purely wasting time, but that's okay. <laughs> yes. the, the law system and I are both better off with me not having become a lawyer, so we, we all win. Um, hey, Stephen, tell me about this book you've chosen for us. So the book I've chosen, Michael, is a book called The Self-Delusion, for those who are watching maybe if it's yeah, online. It's a beautiful it's cover. By, uh, an author called Tom Oliver. And um, it's really, an, he's an ecologist at the University of Reading and a prominent e ecologist and a systems thinker. And what I liked about him, he's tried to make science accessible. Mm -hmm. And uh, he writes in, the, in a more beautiful and poetic level. So this book is really around the surprising science of how we are connected and mm. why that matters. So that's the title of the book. And uh, that's the one I've selected. Yeah, so lovely. I, how, how did you come across it? Uh, I, I, I believe I just saw that on, online when I was researching for a book on, uh, called Not Being. Yeah. And uh, I thought, oh, my God, he's written a, a book <laughs> that, you know, I wish I could have written. You know, I wish yeah. I could have written with, from such a good... Uh, scientific grounding and you know whereas mine is more philosophical and storytelling mm -hmm. his is really like uh, grounded in the data and I thought oh my so I can't com compare to him but there's something I could appreciate about him and uh, so what I did is I I wrote to him yeah. he, he joyfully responded and uh, was there at the the book launch for not being but it's some it's something I admire about how can you take uh, what people consider transpersonal and uh, but from the imminent from what we everyday life and still convey those those same without mm -hmm. resorting to uh, esoteric or without resorting to other language and uh, he does that skillfully and yeah. uh, beautifully and it, it filled me with wonder and I think that's uh, <laughs> one of his gifts. What a isn't it beautiful when you come across a book like that, where you're like, there are some books I, I, I read, I'm going, I'm glad I didn't write that book. And there are some books <laughs> I read where I go, I probably could have written that book if I thought about it. And there are some yes. books I read where I'm like, I could never have written this book. And I'm so grateful that this person did because it is something. Yes, uh, it's definitely the, the latter and for when I um, came yeah. across this book. That's lovely. And how did you come to choose the two pages? So it was difficult. Um, I don't know if they're the right two pages, but they are just pages that got me to think uh, differently. But to be fair, I think, uh, Michael, I've underlined nearly every page in this book. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I'm hoping that the, the, the listeners and the viewers uh, just choose to dip into it if it interests mm. them. But there's uh, far more than what I'll be conveying in these two pages that um, hopefully they can find some uh, something to interest them. Well, let me make a formal introduction. So Stephen D'Souza, man of many talents, but also author of the most recent book, Not Being, reading The Self-Delusion by Tom Oliver. Stephen, over to you. Findings across a wide range of scientific disciplines increasingly support the idea that the central discrete eye we obsessively nurture, protect and talk to throughout our lives is just an illusion. Our body is a key part of our identity, yet most of the estimated 37 trillion cells that make up these bodies have but a short lifespan of days to weeks, so there is a near continual turnover of material. 
new molecules continually flow through us, derived from atoms from the furthest reaches of the universe, and which all have also made up the bodies of countless other plants and animals before us. And since our bodies are essentially made anew every few weeks, the material in them alone is clearly insufficient to explain the persistent dread of an identity. Furthermore, most of the cells in our body are not even human. We contain more bacterial cells than human cells. Moreover, some of these have the ability to influence our moods and manipulate our behaviours, further detracting from our supposed autonomy. If not the materials in our body, what about the DNA instructions that code for its design? Perhaps these comprise our unique identity. Just like the molecules that make up our bodies, our genetic code flows so fluently through and between the branches of the tree of life that it's more like one great networked cloud computer program. Our bodies harbour a small subset of that code, cut and pasted into a transient entity. If our DNA code does not compromise our unique identity, what about our minds? Surely uh, these are our own. Advances in psychology and neuroscience suggest that we have no unchanging independent identity. Instead, we are a bundle of beliefs and self-reflections in constant flux. Our identity is contingent on the time of day, where we are, and who we are with. Our perceptions are filtered by our consciousness, which is itself a product of those perceptions. And so our self-identity is a continually evolving product of the environment we are immersed in. This environment is hugely determined by other humans. Indeed, as humans, we are grand architects of our environment. We have achieved this by being the most mutualistic species on Earth. Try considering a simple man-made object that's close to you right now. Its creation was contingent on the cooperative actions of hundreds, if not thousands of humans across continents and over hundreds of years. Beyond the creation of these objects, our combined human endeavour contains the spoken and written cultures that so fluently cross the blood-brain barrier into our minds and unavoidably determine the way we think. To consider ourselves to be sovereign individuals is a deeply misplaced belief. Unfortunately, we often struggle to comprehend our interconnectedness to others and the world around us. We struggle to see the bigger picture of our selfhood because we suffer from a form of blindness that we might loosely call an individualistic perspective or, more critically, a self-delusion when we recognise its harmful aspects. We are like a thread in a tapestry that is unaware of the majesty of the whole interconnected piece. A wonderful metaphor to finish on. Stephen, where's the freedom for you in this realisation? Yeah, it's a good question, Michael. I think it's a freedom from this sense of uh, that burden that comes if we think of ourselves as separate individuals. We always need to protect. We always need to defend. We always mm. need to grow. And I think, uh, you know, that's the almost like the cost of this excessive individualism. So the, the freedom of knowing about this deep connection is this almost like release from this 
having to be almost like uh, special, having to defend myself, having to progress, and I can breathe, you know, and I say, okay, there's <laughs> right. this relationship, there's this interdependence, and it's also a freedom from this whole drive of autonomy, you know, this whole thing about I'm I'm driving or I'm the captain of my ship, the master of my destiny, to quote the, the, yes. the poem Mandela recited. But it's almost like I'm I'm not the captain of my ship, you know. Yeah. I am not the captain of my destiny. But it doesn't mean I'm uh, just uh, almost like weightless or rudderless. It means that there's a there's a basic trust and a basic understanding that I'm my life intimately connected not just with other human beings, but also with the natural world. Mm. And it includes um, both. So it's a move away from this uh, ego and separate separateness to more like this eco uh, sense of identity, as well as the, the social uh, human uh, connections as well. And and to be honest, I don't really know. There's something I fully <laughs> am aiming to, I'm aiming to fully understand, you know, right, to explore. Right. I'm more the explorer, uh, Michael, rather than the, the sage. But yeah. it's more, you know, how do we live from that perspective? That is my question. And how do we begin uh, to develop uh, lives that take into account mm. our deep interdependence and our deep interrelationality? And that's the question, you know, to live with and the question I'm trying to yeah. understand and, and, and live more you know it reminds me of the paradox of realizing that in no way are we the the, the heart of the universe <laughs> when you look at the universe and you just look at the galaxies and like and it's it's actually overwhelming in terms of how insignificant we are we're this small planet on the outer arm of a minor galaxy in a we don't even know Yes. But it's also true that we are also the center of the galaxy because there is a central consciousness that allows us to see the galaxy around us. And I feel the same when I when I hear you read and I'm like it's true that scientific scientifically it takes like less than two paragraphs to go <laughs> you're delusional around the sense of self because I like not at a not at a DNA level, not at a cellular level, not at a, 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 an intellectual level can you claim to be um, in, independent and individual, and yet, you know, and yet we have our, we, we get our annual performance review, <laughs> which is about how are you doing? Yes, you're right. And I think it's like, it's, it's not this either or, but this both and, mm. and I think what we're moving from is, yes, you're right in human resources or in performance management and the world of work. People used to be judged as individuals only, and then people moved towards, okay, you're also part of a team. How was the team? Mm. How did the team do, you know, beyond yourself? And then how did the organization do? And then how did, so what I think we're moving towards is much more less an individualistic approach, right. a more systemic approach, including the individual, but also thinking more broader. So, for example, in the world of uh, resilience and mental health and well-being, uh, we've seen a particular uh, emphasis on and it's been accentuated because of COVID and the pandemic. Before, people only used to focus on how do we increase the individual's resilience or the individual's right. mental health. And now we recognize it's insufficient. It's like trying to say, you know, why is the fish sick if the water's dirty? Mm -hmm. you know, what is it? What is the the team that that individual's in? What is the leader's role in in setting the for the 
leading the organization. So looking at all three levels yeah. and having much more of a broader approach than the individual alone. So I think what Tom is arguing is that you know, this sense of individual self and agency is important. You know, we need it to operate. And I think there is a, an illness, a, a neurological illness, where people don't have a discrete sense of self. And right. it's by heart, it's impossible to operate. Right. So I think we need that sense of ego and we need a healthy ego. And at the same time, how do we recognize that we're interdependent and mm. we're inter with each other? And I think that's holding both, I think, is, the, is our challenge. Yeah. I think we've overemphasized, uh, which we can see with uh, isolation, with our relationship to environment and nature and and others, how we've overemphasized one e one end of the spectrum, really. So I think it's uh, called to mm. rebalance and uh, to hold both. One of the stories that I <laughs> went, oh, me too, uh, in Not Being, that latest, your latest book, was a recognition around an overcommitment to personal development. <laughs> You're like, I've done, I've been doing, like, because I have a story that maybe is similar to, I think, one of your stories, which is like, look, I took my first personal development course in my first year of university, and it was about, you know, paint your picture of your life and stuff. I was like, oh, this is interesting. It was actually a course on how to be more spontaneous, which <laughs> basically yeah. I had the, basically the mickey taken out of me for about the next two years when I mentioned to my friends that I'd done a course on how to be more spontaneous. They're like, okay, a course on how to be. But um, I'm curious to know as you move into a, a stage of your life where, and I'm projecting here, but I'm going to say where I think of you as potentially as an, in an elder role rather than in a learner role. But I'm curious to know where you find growth now yeah i i really uh felt that as you said and like we shared like this passion for personal development and uh continually learning and growing which you know i think is is valuable but if i reflect on what drove me uh to that i can see it was my own insecurities it was my own almost like a way to <laughs> to feel more uh, confident to feel more capable and to have more maybe autonomy and mastery where I might have felt I lacked it um, in, in my own life. And I, I don't dismiss that. It was very valuable and mm. uh, it, it helped me grow. Uh, but now I, now I think where, where I find more the growth is less in the, is in the, in the, I say less in the prose and more in the poetry less in the classroom and more in the nature more. Mm. So this, this sense of, uh, growth and learning coming not necessarily directly but obliquely mm -hmm. uh, into engagement with life and uh, rather than through personal development courses or uh, ways to do this um, you know and that's the the challenge you know how do you learn from a good russian fiction book about the, the <laughs> there's a life rather than necessarily a course in how to yeah. understand complexity and now of course there's room for both and i think yeah. uh, for me now it's how do I give enough attention to the other side? And I think uh, my stretch point is probably uh, working in a more embodied way. So there's a good uh, chapter about working with the hands, for example. And it talks about Matthew Crawford, who was a lawyer, I think, in Chicago and uh, gave up that. Book. Yeah. yeah, and uh, yeah. became like a motorcycle mechanic. You know, it sounds like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle with the famous yeah. book of the 60s at Robert Persick. 
but I love uh, one of the lines, you know, says there's, uh, there's the, uh, the opposite of the narcissist is the repairman who oh, can, you great. know, who can listen to the broken washing machine, pay attention and uh, really be available, mm. present. And I, I love that. And there's some sense of, you know, still personal development, still veering more to the narcissistic, not necessarily um, consciously, but this idea that I can still make myself better. I can still develop mm. my personal brand. I can still, and, but there's this almost like this humility in, uh, in that's required of us when we're embodied and when we're working mm. with our hands and when we're surrendering and in contact with something, something that we're not trying to master or control, but we're working with understanding and almost it's a, it's a different quality of in, in that yeah. relationship. And I think that's, we find that more in the arts. We find that uh, yeah. in, the, in those simple things like gardening, for example, tending the soil. I, mean, mm-hmm. I think these are the really the areas of growth that I personally think that where I'll develop in the, in the future, or at least hope to, yeah, <laughs> hope to develop in that. the future. And I love that, you know, pointing to the gardener or the repair person with the, you know, kind of dirt and grease and calluses on their actual hands rather than slightly calloused fingertips from the typing, which is as far as it goes for me at the moment. <laughs> um, how do you think about and perhaps decide on who to serve because the repairman is an, an act of service and a gardener is an act of service. And, you know, m- my sense is that you're at a crossroads right now and I'm, I'm curious to know how you figure out, well, who do you choose to serve? Yeah, I've always uh, struggled with this. In, in the past, when I was uh, young, I I thought of a religious vocation. And, uh, you know, I joined an Irish province of a French order uh, dedicated towards service of the poor. And what that meant essentially was a youth, youth leader and working in an Alzheimer's disease unit and uh, two years in a homeless shelter. And then after this, I sort of ended up leaving because I felt that wasn't my vocation but still i want to serve and i didn't know mm-hmm. what is it i'm how is it that i'm called to serve and long story short i ended up in the world of work so firstly as a hr manager in a chain of hotels and then working in an investment bank and if you had asked me in this <laughs> bank is that where i'm called to serve i'd have thought stephen you're losing it where is the how are you serving here so i think uh, what i've come to realize it's less about the context of where i am it's mm. less about who I'm with, but it's more about who am I being mm. and uh, what am I uh, in relationship to who I'm with. So to give you an example, uh, I was in the bank and I had organized, uh, I had more conversations around meaning in the bank than I did when I worked in an NGO. And right. more people come and talk to me about even what's my purpose, you know, asking really deep questions in context that I would have never thought that had anything to do with me. So for example, I organized one of my friends to come in and do a talk about, uh, it was talk about meaning at work. And within a few minutes, 180 people signed up. <laughs> so it shows you that there's, it's not necessarily where you think uh, that right. you are being of service uh, to to actually where you are being of service. Mm. So there's that, that's that question. And so it's more, it's less, uh, I, I feel less, certain now about who am i called to serve but yeah. you know but more around 
remaining open to following what is life. I think Parker Palmer says it well. You know, he says, let your life speak. And meaning what is life calling me to be? What's it calling me to be next? And often it's not what I would have predicted. You know, I Mm. don't have, if I look back on my career, maybe yours, Michael, it's not like a highway. It's more like (laughs) a winding pathway and less predictable than either of us could have have thought. You know, if we were asked, you know, it'd be, 19 or 20 what yeah. would we be doing at our age now so it's unpredictable mine's but, like a very poorly designed video <laughs> game <laughs> yeah so this idea of designing your life I, i'm yeah. not convinced by i think yeah. it's a beautiful concept but actually uh, you can decide out all the complexity or the mystery or the surprise right uh, that comes with life so i'm less from from the design thinking school and yeah. more from there, let's, you know, open to this serendipitous adventure. Mm. And obviously you'll, but you're still being guided by, you're being guided by asking the right questions from your life, continually right. thinking, how best can I be of service and listening? So there's a continual process of discernment, mm. but it doesn't mean that you necessarily know the, the, the way that you're going to end up. So I think it's the questions are the way. And if we're asking those questions continually of ourselves, we'll find the right, uh, the way forward. I, I agree. I think that, you know, being able to be present to the curiosity and the questions and the mystery. But you used a phrase, which is a lovely one, which is, you know, what's life calling me forward to do or to be? And I'm wondering how you, how you hear that. You know, what does it mean to be listening in a way that you actually pick up those weak signals that hint and that whisper and that you know that glance as you talk about in in the book um that might be flashed your way which might offer a unexpected but extraordinary adventure yeah i i hear it from people like you michael so people that are willing you know to reflect back uh willing to listen deeply willing to challenge you know so often i turn to a few people i know like friends and and i and you know i talk to them and i share and uh, they reflect back to me something Mm. about my own lack of confidence or my own where i'm seeing not seeing an opportunity or where i am you know and uh, celebrating that or helping me to 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 do that so i think it's very much in the relationships Mm. and then listening for the the clues as you say or the glimpses or the the moments that feel right inside that send, yeah, you're on the right track. I think uh, one of the things that struck me about you was when uh, you sent me an email, I think, after the house. And I think on your signature, something something along the lines of, you're doing great. Yeah. Something, can you, can you, what's yeah, you're, the... you're, you're awesome and you're doing great. Yeah. And I thought, I just like some postcards made up. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have to say, like, uh, I thought you had written that for me. And, uh, and I didn't know it was your signature. And I thought, oh, my God, this is really affirming. <laughs> and I thought, you know, and to me, it was like, oh, I'm doing okay. I'm on the right path. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's, and I think it's like a, almost like a message often we need to hear. Right. We need to, we need to say to others more. And uh, in fact, I was going to do a LinkedIn post, maybe I'll still do it. Just sharing about your signature, because often I think, those are the the words of encouragement. You know, Chip Conley, who uh, who yeah. wrote the forward for not being, he he coined this thing about modern elder. He used the word earlier mm-hmm. in our conversation, and he said a modern elder, part of their role is being a permissionary 
it's giving people permission almost or encouragement to to uh, spread their wings or to take that leap or to try that new thing and uh, and yeah so i i see almost like the signatures being a giving permission you know you're doing okay you're doing great you know and how do we how do we do that and yeah. uh, for each other i i started using that phrase when i was facilitating and i was getting people to i paired people up and they go through three or four rounds of practicing coaching with each other and um just spontaneously at the end of a first round, I said, now look your partner in the eye and say, you're awesome and you're doing great. And it's incredibly awkward <laughs> the first time that happens, particularly if you're in England, where everyone's yes. like, what are you doing to me? Imagine um, Australia as well. Yeah, then, like. exactly. <laughs> you can feel the resistance and the eye rolling that's in the room. But by the fourth time people are saying it, it's heartfelt and it obviously is resonating with people. Um, so I added it onto email signature and probably twice a week, I get somebody writing back to me going, oh, thanks for that. You're awesome as well, Michael. And I'm like, thank you. I am. That's true. We're all awesome. Except for my mum. My mum hates it because she's like, Michael, you're a road scholar and this is ungrammatical. Don't, okay. don't, don't send this to me. I'm like, okay. I'm playing yeah. for the bigger game here. Not the, not the grammar police, but just trying to. No, it had, give, it had, give it had permission. a huge impact. And I yeah. think as you're saying, it gives permission and. Uh, yeah just i guess a sense of reassurance mm. as uh, what people are looking for as they start to make these decisions about what's next who do i serve etc yeah. it's been such a rich conversation um as a final question perhaps what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between you and me we talked about this uh, time and we talked about this idea of making the most of time and one of the maybe the the greatest provocation really in uh, not being is this idea that you're already and it's linked to your signature in a way is that you're already whole you're already complete and there's mm-hmm. nothing to do so say that you were intimately intimately connected and you did deeply belong uh with not only uh, others around you but with the whole whole <laughs> everything around you literally your part there's nothing for you, you know, that you need to accomplish. You can just allow yourself to be loved. You can allow yourself to to celebrate. You can allow yourself to enjoy. Then, you know, you can create and you can uh, achieve, but not from the space of I need to create in order to to do this, in order to do that, but for the joy of it and for mm-hmm. the celebration of it. And I think that's the that's really the what I hope to get across. Um, in not being and i just want to name my co-author kuyen bui uh, from uh, vietnam that's what we aim to really convey this whole deep sense of you belong and uh, i think if if listeners uh, leave with that i think that would be great i love so much of this conversation i mean you can probably tell why i fanboyed Stephen when i met him in lisbon so much I want to pull from in this conversation, but I think what I'm sitting with at the moment is the tension between careless and careless. That's not the same word. Careless, I'm thinking thoughtless, I'm thinking reckless, heartless, trivializing, a way of dehumanizing almost. It's just about me. You don't care about those around you. But careless, well, that to me is about holding things lightly and with laughter. 
recognizing the smallness of us in space and time. I mean, I cannot wait to see the images and the photos that the James Webb telescope has to show us. And realizing, I think, that this smallness in space and time is freeing for us. It gives us freedom to enjoy this brief, glorious moment. I mean, it really is about asking us to marvel about what's extraordinary about the world we live in right now. I mean, as I look out my window, even as we speak, I'm recording this in the middle of a huge snowstorm in Toronto. We've had more than 30 centimeters, I guess that's what, 10 inches in about the last 12 hours. And I have to keep reminding myself to go, look out the window, Michael, and go, wow, because it's amazing. I think care less means that it's asking us to fully commit to the work that we're doing in a wholehearted way and to worry less about the outcome as best we can. <laughs> you know, as soon as I say that out loud, I'm like, ah, oh, sounds a bit kind of sweeping and kind of a bit uh, kind of, I don't know, generically self-helpy, a bit unrealistic, maybe a tad privileged as well. But still. There's something extraordinary and liberating in the power of care less. But if you care about Stephen and his work, and I hope you do, the best place to go is to his website, Stephen D'Souza, and I'll spell that for you. Stephen is with a V, so S-T-E-V-E-N-D-S-O-U-Z-A, or Z-A, depending on where you are in this world, stephendesouza.com. And he's got a trilogy of books. His most recent is Not Knowing, The Art of Turning Uncertainty into Possibilities. And you know, we love supporting our local bookstores. So if you're thinking of buying it, look there if you can. Thank you. You're awesome. And you're doing great. <laughs>